you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of one's fears and the summit of one's knowledge. You are now traveling through a dimension of imagination. You just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Anthology presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series one episode at a time. However, in this bonus episode series, I will be reviewing the 2019 Twilight Zone reboot produced by Jordan Peele and Simon Kinberg and hosted by Jordan Peele on CBS All Access. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Today on the podcast, I'll be discussing Replay. It's the third episode of The Twilight Zone's first season on CBS All Access. It premiered on the streaming platform on April 11th, 2019. And before I do that, I actually have some feedback and some uh, pre-review notes to go through. So yeah, I'll go ahead and get into that now. Um, uh, listener Monica, who uh, has been supporting the podcast for a long time, actually all of the podcasts really, um, and not to brag, but she did, she did say at one point that Anthology is her favorite podcast. So, uh, if that's still the case, thank you so much. Um, and if not, I'll try to be better. Um, so anyway, that was a weird, uh, transition. So Monica wrote, uh, she wrote to me about the comedian, um, uh, the first episode of the Twilight Zone. So here's what Monica wrote. She said, quote, so about the new Twilight Zone episode, The Comedian. First, I want to say that I was and am so excited for this reboot and got CBS All Access just for it. And I'm not the type that hates on remakes. I actually love them. I never understand why people, uh, I never understand people who complain about them like it somehow takes away from the original. Anyway, I didn't like, uh, I didn't much like this episode. I noticed the things you talked about, like them referencing things that, like, they should already be known with no context. But I just didn't feel much connection to the characters, and sometimes it all just felt silly. I did like any time they showed that wall with all the people's faces on it. In the beginning, you get uh, a good shot of some of the faces, and they look kind of creepy. It looked like some of them were distorted due to them not being lined up right, or that maybe some of the paper got bunched up and just made some creepy-looking faces. But I just kind of hope they put this one first to get the worst out of the way first. Uh, oh, I did notice the lighting in the apartment that you talked about. That was really cool. I liked the effect. It's creepy and chaotic. It reminds me a bit of what they did in Bandersnatch during the acid part because that actually happens on LSD. Those strange lighting changes that seem to happen for no reason. Uh, end quote. So, uh, thank you, Monica, for writing in. And she said that she also watched uh, Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, but she wasn't sure if I had seen it yet because at that point I had only released the first episode. So, uh, definitely let me know what you thought of Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, Monica. I can't wait to hear what you say. And to all the other listeners, uh, write in. Let me know what you think of the new episodes and everything. I'm, I'm really, uh, excited that we have this show now. So uh, let me know what you guys think. Uh, you know where to find me. So some pre-review notes, some uh, kind of not feedback, but some, some notes about uh, the previous episodes. Um, first of all, 
Actually, this kind of goes into feedback thing. Uh, Gregory Tyson on Twitter, um, at Gregory Tyson 13, um, he wrote, The comedian was a solid seven. Noah didn't set up the reboot as well as whereas everybody set up the original Twilight Zone and its length and coarse language, which feels shoehorned in, frankly, are drawbacks, but it has the TZ feel, which is not easy to capture. Um, I just wanted to put that, in, uh, put that, uh, put that out there, um, because I really enjoy Greg, uh, Gregory's, uh, uh, Twitter feed. Um, if you're on Twitter and you like the Twilight Zone, definitely follow Greg at Gregory Tyson 13. Uh, the guy lives and breathes Twilight Zone and he has a lot of, uh, cool insight. He's emailed into the podcast before and it's always a treat when I hear from him. So check him out on Twitter at Gregory Tyson 13. Um, so one correction for my review of the comedian. Um, I said that Kumail Nanjiani won, uh, the Oscar for best original screenplay. Um, kind of funny. I was wrong. Um, but, uh, he lost the best original screenplay Oscar to Jordan Peele, who won for Get Out in, uh, in, in the, the Oscar race. Um, so that was cool. Just a little correction there and kind of a fun kind of coincidence. And so a couple of kind of critiques of the comedian that I wanted to bring up kind of, this is just broad critiques that people have, have brought up, uh, across the internet. Um, I don't, remember per se if I brought them up in the episode, so I'll be brief. But the first one is that the whole argument that there, I don't know, there, there was an argument, not argument, but there was a backlash or what have you. There was a vocal piece of, of the fan community of the Twilight Zone who said that they were put off by the, the comedian's kind of forced political messages or, um, it, they felt like it was just, you know, too political and like there are different there are different um uh extremes that you can go with that with that and everything so i'm not saying everyone who said like oh the show was too political um i'm not saying what i'm about to say because of like just a blanket statement i'm just saying that the people who people who specifically said like the show is too political i'm i don't think i'm gonna watch it I saw like a few comments of people saying that they that they didn't like the politics in the first episode, so they're not going to watch the series. Um, what what? Um, it's uh, that kind of just kind of bothered me a little bit because the whole point of the Twilight Zone is to have like this social commentary and everything. The reason that Rod Serling created the Twilight Zone was because he was being censored when he wrote uh, dramatic uh, scripts that had social social commentary and like like included references to uh current issues of the time and he was being censored because they wouldn't they they didn't want to have that on there so he did that under he created the twilight zone to have those messages play out in a science science fiction platform um that's the whole reason and there are tons of political like episodes episodes that take like a political idea and do that. Like my favorite episode so far, the monsters are doing on Maple street. It is about McCarthyism and, and the red scare and blacklisting, um, writers and everything. And it's told through this, through this prism of science fiction. That's the whole point. But, and that like, everyone knows that that's the twilight. That's what the twilight zone is. And into, I don't know the people saying that the show in the comedian was too political. I think what they're getting at is that, the opening the uh, Kumail's character's opening kind of bit about the second amendment is what 
turn them away and put them off. Um, also, um, uh, the whole fascist, uh, the president is fascist who should be strung up by his balls um, bit. Like, those two are what kind of got the ire of some people that watch the show because they felt like it was a specific attack on the second people who support the second amendment or people who support Donald Trump. Um, I don't either. (laughs) I mean, I don't support either of those. So I don't, um, I didn't take offense to it or anything. And I also went on record on the podcast saying that I thought that the second amendment bit was kind of a good bit. Um, and that's, that's my cross to bear because apparently everyone hated it, um, in terms of comedy. But anyway, um, what I'm getting at is that if you, this is the reason why the Twilight Zone, I feel, should have been rebooted and why the Twilight Zone should exist in this time in America and world history, essentially. Um, because if you watch, like, what I don't get is people who watch the show, and right off the bat, it's like, oh, the Second Amendment, uh, people who don't like, the, who don't want to have uh, gun control regulated are spouting about how the Second Amendment, uh, it's against the Second Amendment, even though the Second Amendment says it's a well-regulated militia. Um, that's, that makes logical sense and everything. But if you support the Second Amendment and you, you saw that bit and you thought, oh, this is, this show's too political, they're just forcing their political views, their liberal agenda into the, epi- into the episode, um, I'm not going to watch it anymore. That I think is a great like metaphor for the world we're in today. Like we're in a world where, you know, if someone disagrees with your politics, um, you will just shut down. Like I'm talking both sides of, of everything, like every side of the political argument. It's like, since we're in this outrage, Twitter culture where you can just spout off anything in, in like 30 seconds and then like, let it go. Uh, there's no like discourse. There's no like actual discussion or anything. And it's just, it bothers me that like we live in a time where someone can watch a piece of art that is, makes reference to something in a negative manner that they support. And that will cause a reaction. That's like, Oh, I don't want to watch this. They're just shutting down completely. They're not going to think about it critically or, or, move past it since it's a small piece of the episode. Anyway, I'm getting away from myself. And if I keep talking more, I'll dip into my uh, review of replay because there's a lot of political stuff in, in replay that I really want to talk about. So anyway, I just think that that's an interesting reflection of the society that we're in today that, you know, an episode of television can have a brief reference to one side of uh, the political argument and the other side of that political argument will a small portion of that side of the political argument, I should say, will take that and say, I'm not going to watch this at all. Um, full on boycott. I just, I don't, I don't get it. I think that that's a small, a sad statement on the world we're in today. Um, second point about the comedian is that, uh, people were saying like a big, I don't know if I'd say a big point of contention or a big criticism or, or, um, observation that people made was that the comedian didn't have good comedy, which, I, I agree. Like at best it was media. Like I said, like some of the bits are kind of funny at the beginning. Um, I'm not saying I'm howling with laughter at them. Like I, they got a sensible chuckle out of me, but I feel like, I feel like some people may have missed the point. And I mentioned this in the episode where I reviewed it, that it's not supposed to have good comedy. It's not like the whole point of him having this power is that he can say anything 
as long as he like references someone in his life, that's what will get him the success and laughs and everything. It's, it's a metaphor. It's, I don't know. It just, it kind of seems like some people kind of miss the point there. And I just wanted to kind of highlight that moving on, uh, nightmare at 30,000 feet. Some notes about that. Um, I mentioned that the pilot's name was captain Donner. And I mentioned that Joe Donner was a character in the comedian completely missed the fact that, uh, the, name of the pilot in Nightmare at 30,000 Feet is a reference to Richard Donner, who was the director of the original series episode Nightmare at 20,000 Feet from season five of the original Twilight Zone, um, which I understandable that I missed that because I haven't seen Nightmare at 20,000 Feet given the whole uh, re like setup of this entire podcast. But anyway, uh, moving on, um, <laughs> I mentioned that I thought that, uh, the podcast host name in Nightmare 30,000 Feet was maybe a reference to Serling. Um, of course it is. <laughs> I feel like such an idiot. Um, the podcast name is, the podcast host name is Rodman Edwards. And of course, Rod Serling's full name was Rodman Edward Serling, so obviously that is a direct reference to Rod Serling, um, and I am stupid. Um, um, uh, also, another uh, Easter egg that I didn't catch was that Jordan Peele, during his closing narration, you can see that he's wearing a bracelet when he picks up the MP3 player on the beach. It is a replica of the paratrooper bla- bracelet that Rod Serling always wore. So that's interesting. And then my final part about Nightmare at 30,000 Feet is that, um, is about the ending. Um, so Tom Elliott, who hosts the spectacular, uh, the Twilight Zone podcast, he has been, uh, what he's, do- what he's doing, and I think this is fantastic, is like he is inviting his listeners to record audio and submit it to the show and have feedback for every episode. Um, I'm hoping that I have time to record a brief one, uh, to send over to him today, uh, after this recording. But anyway, one of his listeners on the episode, um, the feedback episode for Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, uh, really puts, kind of had a, a really brilliant, brilliant take on the episode. Um, I can't remember what the guy's name was. Go listen to that episode, though. It's, it's really fantastic. Uh, briefly, what I'll say is that he basically saw the episode as a metaphor. Um, it, it, was a, it was a mirror to modern journalism and the way that um, people, like investigative journalism in particular, has a responsibility to be the, be the fourth branch of the, of the government to has a responsibility to basically uncover, uh, what's harmful and expose it and everything. And throughout the episode, uh, Justin Sanderson is an investigative journalist who is trying to uncover this mystery that is happening on the plane. And he is failing continuously each time he is failing spectacularly (laughs) throughout the episode. And he ends up bringing down the plane, um, while trying to investigate this thing and trying to expose what's going on. Um, the ending that I feel like there was a lot of, um, kind of confusion or, or disappointment with the ending. Um, what Tom Elliott's listener, uh, pointed out was that, the, that's, first of all, that's the end of civility in general. And it's also that, that ending, and this it makes it so much more powerful to me, that the ending of the episode where the, where the, um, passengers all go after Justin on the beach, um, that is, that is a metaphor for society kind of going, like, um, going after 
journalists. Um, we're in an area in, in an era where there's like people spouting off that there's fake news and everything and completely discrediting the media and everything. What I kind of extrapolated from Tom Elliott's listener, uh, his analysis of the episode is that that ending felt like the passengers were, were like the American people or the public in general. Um, and they are attacking the journalist uh, either on one hand, just thinking that it's, it's fake fake news and completely just attacking their ideals and everything. A lot like the people who (laughs) had problems with the comedian, but on the other hand, it's, it's them. It's them saying that, Hey, you failed us. You failed us as a society. You had a responsibility to, uh, to uncover the truth and to protect us from evil and from, from horrible things and you failed. And that's why we're going after you. I just thought that that kind of analysis that, um, that thought, uh, thought process through it is, was absolutely just beautiful. Um, I thought it was a brilliant take on it and going back and rewatching nightmare 30,000 feet really put it into a unique perspective for me. Um, and really made me just appreciate the episode all the more. And I really enjoyed the episode in general. So that just kind of elevated it for me. No pun intended. Um, so all that out of the way, let's talk about replay. Um, I can't wait to talk about this. This is, man, this was a great episode. So let's go into the, uh, plot summary just real quick. Uh, according to, uh, CBS all accesses, uh, plot summary is, Nina's old camcorder can rewind time, but can it help her ensure the future of her college-bound son, Dorian? Just so you know, I'm going to be spoiling Replay throughout this review, so if you haven't seen Replay, go check it out on CBS All Access. Come back and listen to this review. Uh, So spoilers on for Replay starting now. So Talon Rundown, this episode stars, uh, and I'm so sorry if I mispronounce the names, uh, Sanaa. Lathan as Nina Harrison. She uh, has had several acting credits. She was in uh, the movie that's releasing this year, Native Son, which I think was was a big hit at Sundance this year. Uh, she was also in 20 episodes of The Affair. She was also the star of the Netflix film Napoli Ever After. And she also appeared in the uh, Dylan O'Brien um, vehicle spy thriller vehicle uh american assassin one or two years ago with uh, michael keaton was in it too but anyway that's an interesting kind of um weird connection because uh dylan o'brien actually appears in the first episode of weird city which is a youtube series uh youtube original series that's produced by jordan peele and win robbins uh rin win rosenfield i think is his name um who well, obviously produced twilight zone um and it's also kind of a, I don't know, it's, it's a half hour sci-fi anthology series that's more comedic than anything. Um, I watched like three or four episodes of it. It's, I mean, it's solid. It's okay. Um, and I'm trying to, trying to figure out how to review it on the podcast. I might do like a one-off, like season review of it, um, after I finish the Twilight Zone bonus reviews, but I don't know. We'll see. Um, uh, but it's on YouTube. Go check it out if, if, uh, it's, on YouTube Red, I think is what it's called. YouTube Premium, whatever it's called. Uh, but check it out there. And I think I think the first episode is actually free. But anyway, um, co-starring as Dorian Harrison is Damson Idris, who appeared in the movies Megan Levy and The Commuter. And Glenn Fleshler plays Officer Lasky, who has he has worked in uh, 
a bunch of HBO stuff. He was he's in the HBO series Barry with Bill Hader. He was in season one of True Detective, and he was in several episode ep, several episodes of Boardwalk Empire. And rounding out the cast is Steve Harris as Neil. He previously worked with director Gerard McMurray on the movie The First Purge. He was also in Justified, Friday Night Lights, the TV show, and uh, the 90s teen suspense thriller uh, The Skulls, um, which I, I I don't know. that I was just thinking about that movie recently, um, so it's weird that it kind of cropped up here, but that movie was... I don't know. It had Joshua Jackson and uh, Paul Walker about secret societies at, at a college. It was, I don't know. I, I haven't seen it in several, several years, but um, I don't know. It was, it, it was kind of fun when I saw it in the nineties. Uh, writer for this episode is Selwyn Seifu Hines. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, this is actually his first writing credit, according to IMDb, um, at least for TV and film. But he did contribute to the sci-fi anthology comic book, uh, comic book anthology, Strange Adventures from Vertigo and DC Comics. Um, he contributed the story Case 21. Um, I haven't read it. I think it's from, uh, it was released in February of 2014. I haven't read it, but I did just order it on Amazon, so I'll report back in a future episode. Uh, and rounding out the, uh, talent rundown is director Gerard McMurray. He direct, he wrote and directed, I should say, Burning Sands, uh, that, which was a Netflix movie from 2017. I think it was about, um, uh, hazing and fraternities, um, I haven't seen it, but but it's on Netflix, so check it out. He also directed The First Purge, and he was a pro- producer on Fruitvale Station. Okay, so let's talk about Replay. Um, my initial thoughts uh, after my first viewing, um, the way that I do this uh, these bonus reviews is I watch the episode once just to watch it and enjoy it like a, a human being. <laughs> um, and then the second, third time I watch it, I take notes throughout throughout the viewing and compile those notes and have a 16 page PDF file in front of me to, uh, go through it. Um, it's not really 16 pages. The font's really big, but anyway, um, so my initial thoughts after my first viewing of replay was, first of all, I thought it was a just beautiful piece of television, uh, thought provoking, intense, very powerful. And it's exactly why the twilight zone needs to exist. Um, it's, it's the embodiment of what, I feel the message of the Twilight Zone should be. Um, I'll get into more specifics in a bit, but I just, I, when, when they talk about rebooting the Twilight Zone, bringing it back for a modern audience, um, there are things here and there that they can do, shouldn't do, won't do, or did and, and shouldn't have done, whatever. Um, but at, at, like, there's a lot of conversation about that. But at its heart, what I think the Twilight Zone represents, um, from my perspective, it is a is that it's a reflection of our modern times in a science fiction setting. It is telling these stories about humanity and about how we treat each other as human beings and and how we interact with each other through the prism of science fiction. And we're in a time, like I've I've said before, we're at a time where we are, where where the uh, the conversation about politics, about, about social justice, whatever, about just like our society as a whole. Like, I'm not just talking just, you know, America, but just around the world. Like, 
people the conversations are volatile it's it's really just at a at just a a really volatile like point and it's just everything is so amped up to 11 everyone thinks they're right about everything and is un um is and is unwilling to even consider the any alternate opinions and everything i mean for god's sakes they think that like the second that an episode of television you know badmouths their right to bear arms they are ready to write off the entire season of television the entire reboot but anyway having an episode like replay that takes such a such an important topic as the Black Lives Matter movement and police brutality and just institutional racism and puts it into this this framework of the Twilight Zone is exactly why the Twilight Zone needs to exist. And that's exactly why this is an important time for the Twilight Zone to exist. And I just I I I was just blown away by it. Um on the flip side of that, I am my initial thoughts after the first viewing was that I was bracing myself for how people who dislike the politics of the comedian were going to respond to this. And honestly, I am recording this Saturday, the 13th. Um, I'm really hoping to get this episode posted today, um, but I might not get it posted tonight. That's neither here nor there because you're listening to it right now and it's in the future. But anyway, I'm recording this Saturday, April 13th. This episode came out Thursday, the the 11th, and I didn't have time to watch it before work, so I spent the entire day at work just waiting to go home and watch it. So I watched it immediately after work, and my plan was I was uh, look like, okay, I get off work at 3.30, race home, eat some dinner, watch it twice, record an episode, release it for Friday. That was my plan. I watched this episode one time, and I just sat with it, and I was like... I was so naive to think that I could just watch this episode twice and then be ready to just pump out an episode of of the podcast because this is an episode that needs to sit with you. And that's why it's it's Saturday afternoon and I'm finally recording this episode after having watched this episode probably six or seven times. Anyway, those were my initial thoughts. And let's dive into my review of Replay. So right off the bat, the opening scene, we see the logo for Busy Bee Diner, which is a direct reference to the episode from Season 2, Nick of Time, with Bill Shatner, uh, Season 2, Episode 7. And so yeah, so we go inside the diner, and we see Nina and Dorian, uh, mother and son, talking in the diner. It's revealed that no, uh, that basically there, Nina is taking Dorian to college. Uh, he's He's leaving for college. He has... Uh, freshman orientation the next day. Um, all of the dialogue is a little exposition heavy. Um, just like, oh, you know, it's like in that we, we are front loaded with, we're, we're loaded up with so much information. Like he's going away to college. She didn't have anyone that, uh, helped get her into college. She had to do everything on her own. And it's important to her that he has the opportunities that she didn't have. And even down to the fact that, okay, we, they had, uh, they didn't sign up or they signed up for his classes later or earlier and they need to go for orientation the next morning. Like all of that is just kind of exposition heavy, but it didn't detract from it just strictly because of the chemistry between these two actors. Um, 
I thought like they were great. They were fantastic. Like uh, the chemistry and the writing is so strong. Um, like when Nina says that uh, she only helped herself, like she, she took herself to college. It was just, uh, she was the one that helped herself to get into college and everything. And she says, you know, it was just me, myself and I, and then like, it's, that's important, uh, background for the character. But then Dorian just says like, Oh, safety in numbers. It's just like this kind of playful kind of, kind of thing, um, in the dialogue that I really appreciated. Um, and then they get into the whole conversation about Uncle Neil and how uh, he said that her father was proud of her. And she kind of says, like, how do you know what, what he would say? And he says, like, oh, he was corresponding with him on Facebook. And in that, it's that gives us more information because it's not just that she she did everything on her own and she left, she left home to go to college and she worked hard to get herself into college and everything. It's that she completely uh, removed herself from her family, essentially. So she hasn't had any contact with her family in the years since she left home. So that's important, um, backstory that'll come into play later. But then we get in the, in this scene, we get flashes of like a woman spilling sugar, um, which I thought was, would be more prominent in the episode. And I'm really glad it wasn't overused. Like it's such a, I don't want to say contrivance, but it's like, it's something that seems kind of, a staple of this type of story where you have a story that is about time travel and no uncertain terms where you're, you're literally going back in time and replaying the same thing, a groundhog day kind of thing. Um, so having a woman just spilling a whole thing of sugar on the table or on the counter is just kind of like a, a trope of that type of story. And it's, I don't know, it kind of, it kind of, I'm glad that, like I said, I'm glad that they didn't overuse it because it could have been a little, I don't know, annoying, but they did it well, so I, I appreciated that. Um, so Nina whips out this old camcorder, and they're kind of playing with the camcorder there. Um, Dorian gives her some uh, playful kind of push uh, pushback, like, why do you want to um, use this old camcorder? Why don't you use your phone like everyone in this century? Um, and she has the, this nice moment where it's like, this, this camcorder recorded your first steps, um, and it's going to record your first steps into college. And he's like, I, again, I love the di- the dialogue is so clean, or so so well done and the chemistry is so great because he's like yeah i've heard that before blah 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 um it's just a kind of a playful like back and forth between them i i I really appreciated their performances in this episode um so at this point uh officer lasky comes in we get the introduction of uh, uh, officer lasky and that's when we like i i really like that that's when we see the mystic seer um there's a mystic seer just on the counter and everything it's not um it's not overt or anything. I, I just like that that's that it's there. Um, it was featured prominently in the trailers and everything. We get a couple shots of it in the episode. It's not overdone. I appreciate it for that. And then we get even an, like another nick of time reference on top of that. When uh, Lasky goes up to the counter and Mabel says like, oh, hey, what'll it be? Will you have like a sandwich or eggs or whatever? And he says, uh, this is a chicken fried steak kind of day, which uh, I really like that because in nick of time, the... Uh, the owner of the, the busy bee and Nick of time was <laughs> kind of, it wasn't pushy, but there were a couple scenes in that episode where he, uh, tried to get the couple to order the chicken fried steak. So I just, I like that as an Easter egg for the original series. So after he orders his food, uh, Lasky sits down at the counter and we see in the background, we see in focus, we see Nina and Dorian kind of goofing off. Nina has the camcorder pointed at Dorian and she says, um, 
So this is for the behind the scenes of the film Dorian Goes to College. And I I really like the way that uh, this shot is set up. So we, the audience, like the camera that's shooting the actual episode, um, is positioned right by Lasky, where Lasky's sitting. And we see Lasky is in the foreground. He's, he's, out of fr- uh, he's out of focus. And in the background, we see Nina and Dorian in focus. And we can clearly see, like, the audio is, is you know, clear that, you know, she is speaking at a, at a, at a volume where, um, you know, where the camera is positioned where we are can hear it. So Lasky can hear her say that Dorian is going to college. And I kind of feel like that kind of demonstrates or it can be read as Lasky, like the, the reason for Lasky's grudge against them. Um, like I kind of feel like that that's supposed to signify that Lasky is holds this grudge against this young black family because they're, uh, the young black man is going to college and he's not like, he's not a, what the kind of racist um, institution views of, of views of a young black man. Um, I, I don't know. I just feel like that was, that was kind of a profound kind of powerful kind of statement. So I kind of feel like in general, like this episode as a whole achieves a certain level of brilliance in my eyes with the kind of symbolism at play. So officer Lasky is, it's it's this isn't a simple story of a police officer that's racist going after a young black family. Um it's more I don't want to say subtle cuz the symbolism is kind of overt, but it's more it's more symbolic than that. It's more metaphorical. So Officer Lasky represents institutional racism, authority figures dead set on keeping black people oppressed. Like the uh, the idea of racism how it is pervasive in our culture and its goal is to keep non-white people in a place that's, that's lower than what white people are at, um, through the, through the prism of racism, essentially. Like it's about people, people keeping other people down. Um, in here in this episode, Lasky, the, representative of racism in our in our society and our culture he is literally preventing dorian from becoming an educated black man he's he's literally preventing dorian from going to college where he wants to study film and everything he is trying to keep dorian like down essentially and it's just like this whole kind of structure the symbolic nature of this entire structure is has so many applications in our society, sadly, like the whole Oscar so white controversy, like the idea of minority directors um, and minority storytellers in film and television, not, not being represented and everything like that's, it's a powerful statement um, that goes even beyond like the more tragic and horrific um, story of Black Lives Matter and, and actual, like, black people being gunned down, um, and violence against, you know, minorities. Like, it's, there's so many different things to this. And I, that's why I think this episode is important and brilliant in the way that it depicts it, because it is telling this story in such a unique way that should be, 
a that should be a reflection of society and that's what the twilight zone is and that's why i just i love this episode so much so back to the booth with nina and uh dorian and uh, nina's kind of you know they're joking around and she says that he's going to be the next ryan coogler um which i i i dug that reference i i liked it a lot so um ryan coogler of course directed black panther and uh uh fruitvale station and creed um god his his work in creed is great anyway uh so dorian is is you know eating his food and everything squirts the ketchup ketchup bounces up hits him in the shirt um same spot he gets shot later in the episode which is fine it's not a very subtle thing it's kind of it kind of uh i don't know it's it's kind of weird the way that the that the ketchup bounces on him but it's fine it's a fine visual reference okay so when uh when he scores ketchup on him on himself and uh she says that about uh or uh he says like wait were you filming that you need to rewind it and they kind of wrestle for the camcorder uh so they hit rewind and that's when we get our twilight zone effect um that's when that's when we get our entrance into the twilight zone and uh and it you know to a certain extent I like the effect of the rewind. Um, it's loud and the detail of the visuals is, is, isn't hokey at all. It's like, it's like, it's a rewind effect, but it's, it's not like that kind of rewind thing. It's like, uh, it's like a loud kind of imposing rewind effect that I, that I liked. Um, so we get the rewind. Nina is confused and, and, like wondering what the hell happened. And then we get Peel's narration where he says, presenting Nina Harrison, a woman who left her past behind to provide a better future for her son. Um, I'm uh, again, I'm loving Peel's narrations in these episodes. Like he has that tone and that stature just really down, like down. It's, it's really great. Um, I kind of wasn't crazy about him reading the paper as he's saying, saying it. Like if you think back to Nick of time, um, Sarling is just sitting at the booth. He's talking directly to the camera. Like I think in most, if not all of his on screen, um, narrations, at least in season two that I've seen, um, he's looking directly at us and everything, but I, I just, that's a minor gripe. It's not even a gripe. It's just an observation really. Uh, but he looks up and he says, like when he says that she's, uh, going down a, a road in the twilight zone, when he says in the twilight zone, that's when he looks up. So I dug that. So, Coming off of the first episode of the show, The Comedian, and kind of like how most of those scenes were set in a darkly lit comedy club, and then the kind of claustrophobic space of Nightmare at 30,000 Feet, like coming off of those two episodes and going into replay, it feels kind of nice to see these wide open exteriors in the episode. Like it's just, it's, it's kind of gorgeous. Um, we see like there are a lot of wide shots of just planes and not pl- not like airplanes but like plane you know uh geography and just empty roads that they're that they're traveling on i just i love that i i thought that it looked really good um one of the opening scenes is there's a mile marker for 8 mile and I don't know what that is a reference to. Um, the only reference I can glean from it is Eminem's movie Eight Mile, which is about a man who's working hard to kind of uh, elevate his life and in, in, to an extent, like you get to a better 
a better life uh, than he has now. So maybe that's that's what they're saying there. Um, it's revealed in the car that Nina is a lawyer, just kind of in a passing uh, conversation where she says that, uh, how come I can win all my cases in court, but I can't win a case with you or win an argument with you? Um, uh, that's fine. It's It's interesting that two episodes... Uh, have lawyers, but it doesn't come into play in the episode at all, so that's fine. Um, it's revealed that Dorian set the GPS to take them to his uncle Neil's, and that uh, causes a kind of a, a bit of a, an argument between Nina and Dorian. Nina opposes it. She hasn't been back home in a long time, and it took a lot for her to, quote, get out of there. Um, Dorian wants to see his family he wants to meet his family or or he wants to he wants to see his family um because it's been so long um at this point they pass a sign for earliesville which i no idea if that's a reference to anything in the twilight zone if it is go ahead and and let me know because i i'm at a loss but we see a couple signs for earliesville and it's not like a reference that i can i can glean so yeah, but anyway, going back to the car, Dorian says that uh, he hasn't seen Uncle Neil since Kaepernick took the Niners to the Super Bowl, and um, I kind of love that because this this episode is all about the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and everything. Um, it's an episode that's born from that movement, and uh, having a reference to Colin Kaepernick, who uh, has been uh, famously you know, kneeling during the national anthem, um, in the NFL. And that's caused just a lot of, um, a lot of conversation and outrage in our society here. That's just, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious how, again, how the people that were complaining about politics in the first episode, how they take that reference in this episode, um, as a whole, because, there's a whole thing and it's just it's aggravating to not put it lightly um or to put it lightly it's aggravating to say like people saying like oh he's disrespecting the he's disrespecting the troops by kneeling during the national anthem which is it is apps 100% inaccurate it is just it's he's he's making a peaceful statement about you know, a peaceful political statement and people blow it up into something that it's not because they, because people are incapable of, there are certain people in our society who are incapable of reflecting on what the actions of others are saying. Um, and instead take it as a direct, um, even if it's peaceful, they take it as an, an aggression on their values and on the country as a whole. It's just absolutely ridiculous to me but anyway um yeah so i i i love that they got that reference into the episode and i'm curious to hear what other people say about it um because i don't actually know if i said this earlier in the recording or not um i haven't listened to any podcasts on this episode i haven't seen any i haven't looked up any reviews or any uh twitter responses or anything so i am recording this in a vacuum i don't know what people are saying about replay um but I'm going to check uh, out the reviews and everything as soon as I finish recording this. Um, so anyway, they're in the car. Dorian picks up the camera and starts filming his mom. And it gives some additional backstory uh, or background to their story and everything. And that's when Lasky stops them. And I really like the timing of that. Like the timing of the siren is it's just it's perfect because Dorian, as he's as he's holding the camera and filming Nina, he's saying that. 
uh, basically what he's saying is that he, like, what do you think the effect of not seeing my family for so long, um, how do you think that's affected me becoming a young black man in America? And as soon as he says that, that's when the siren whoops and, and we see that Lasky's pulling them over. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I, I love the timing of that. It's just, it's really kind of clever, um, storytelling. So they pull over and Lasky's walking up to the window. Um, first of all, as he's getting out of the car, Nina tells Dorian, remember, like we talked about, no attitude, be respectful. Um, and she's clearly like nervous. She's, she's unsettled. Um, she has so much fear and anxiety and with good reason. Like she has devoted her life to her son and her deepest fear is losing him. And she knows that, you know, police, uh, there is this law enforcement and people in authority look down on you know, African-Americans in our society. That's, that's the, that's what her perspective is. And she is terrified anytime like Lasky comes up. So, um, I just, in here, I just, I love, or I think it's interesting how their dynamics reverse later in the parking lot scene, which I'll get to later. But for right now, basically Nina's position is just be respectful. Just like, listen to him, like be respectful. Don't, don't give him attitude and everything. Whereas Dorian is, more of a, you know, he's, he's someone who's like, okay, well, he's question he's not questioning the authority. He's questioning the logic of it. Like there's no reason for him to like later on in, in the motel, there's no reason for him to need their ID or anything like that's, there's not anything, there's not reason for it. He's calling him out for that. So anyway, what I saying that in saying that what I think this episode demonstrates spectacularly well is the generational shift in how how these characters approach racism. Like Nina is a non-confrontational person in in most of her scenes with Lasky and she's fearful because she has seen what racism can do. She's traumatized by it. She knows that it, she knows that there is this uh this energy within the culture that a white man could easily murder her son and be like perfectly fine with that or, or be uh, could shoot her son. Like the escalation of a scene between her Dorian and Lasky could end up with Dorian being killed as it does later in the episode. And she is traumatized by that thought. Dorian on the other hand is young and he has lived through the beginning of this revolution of sorts. Like he is, he's coming of age in a time where video recording exists in our pockets and everything. And there is a certain accountability that in theory should be held for law enforcement and for, um, these institution, these institutions of racism in our society, no matter what it is like there, there is an, there is in theory an accountability. So Dorian has this on, on his side where he is, he is willing to call out these, these, um, transgressions by Lasky. And so I just love that dynamic and it comes into play later in the episode as well, which I'll get to. But anyway, so as Lasky's walking up to the car, the way that he touches the car on his way up, like the, la- the like the back, like fender and, and window, um, he kind of glides his hand over it on his way up. It feels like this subtle admiration, um, 
when you put it into context with the later scene where he is asking how she got the car, um, you can maybe kind of extrapolate that to, to being like Lasky having this sense of unwarranted ownership of the car. Like, like his, like his behavior, his thought process, the character's thought process is, and again, Lasky is a representative of this racist, um, world we, like the the unchecked institutional racism of our society. So his thought process as that personification is they're black, I'm white, therefore this should be mine and not theirs. And so like that, like I just, I love the subtleness of that. Maybe I'm reaching, maybe I'm th- overthinking it, but I just, I love that that's the impression that I get from that. And it's just, it's just, it's kind of powerful and subtle and just beautifully done. Um, so, uh, Lasky does his whole police, like, uh, how's it going or not? How's it going? It's not casual. It's like very robotic and everything. Um, Nina tells him that he's, she's taking, uh, Dorian to college. And then Lasky's immediate, immediate response is the black college up there. And like, I, the casualness and the condon, uh, the condescension of that and the underlying tone of like, it's almost like he's like, you the kind of underlying idea of him saying like, Oh, the black college, it's almost like him saying the black college where you belong. Um, it's just, it's, I, I, I think that that's just, again, really powerful writing. Um, and in addition to that, that's, that's also like, I can't, I can't say enough how much I love the writing in this episode. So when in that scene, when Dorian asks, uh, why, or when he, when he asks Dorian, when Lasky asks Dorian why he was pulled, why he pulled him over, um, Dorian says, cause he was going too fast. And Lasky says, since you admitted it, I'll let that go. And that's just dripping with subtext. Like that is just incredibly powerful writing again, because on one hand, you have the metaphor of, like the institutional racism of, of our society asking the young, uh, black man, what, like, why this racist, this racist entity is stopping him from going to college. And Dorian says, because I was going too fast. And it's like this, just this powerful metaphor of like the society we live in, the institutional racism. I'm going to say that so many times in this episode. I'm sorry for the repetition, but that's the, that's the, what I'm locking into in this, in this episode. Um, but the idea of, institutional racism and the idea that, you know, it will stop young minorities from um, advancing in our society because they're going too fast. They're not going the speed that, that the, uh, like that our culture uh, has been ingrained into keeping them from going. Um, And add to that the additional layer of Lasky saying, since you admitted it, I'll let that go just that uh, that also has just this underlying tone of just control like Lasky feels like he has this sense of control over them the sense of power that he's lording over them like since you admitted it uh, like and it's it's such a i don't want to say polite cuz that's too kind a of word for it but it's like this it's under this veneer of of not even respect just this veneer of like like this idea of him just giving cutting him a break like since you admitted it i'll let that go because i have this power over you that i can i can dictate whether you're free or in jail 
And since you are kind enough to admit that you are in the wrong, I will just let that slide. Like it's just, just again, that, that tone of just control and power that he has over them is just palpable and just, just really powerful. Um, so the scene gives us our first of a few scenes where Lasky demands that the camera be turned off. And I, I love this as a running theme throughout the episode. Lasky, again, represents the racist institutions of society and the entities in our society that are keeping minorities from advancing or, or trying their best to to prevent um, minorities from having a voice in our society. So anytime the camera is on him, the camcorder is on him, he switches. Like he becomes belligerent and almost robot-like when he's being recorded. Um, it's just, it's this incredibly incisive depiction of racist authority desperately wanting to hide its face from the world and operate in a world where it can thrive without accountability. It sets up the power of the ending of the episode with the filming of the cops incredibly well. Um, because filming, filming the police is robbing the, the racism that it's, that it's embodying of its power to, you know, Lord over the, over the minorities of our culture. And it's just, it's incredibly powerful the way that, uh, Lasky just switches, like he becomes belligerent. And, um, like I said, it's almost robot like in the way that he says it. It's, it's very much like, uh, I mean, it's basically what you see in, in, you know, videos like this. It's like, oh, turn the camera off and everything. It's like, it's, again, it's racist entities not wanting to be held accountable for their actions. So at this point, Nina rewinds the video. She's freaking out. Uh, she rewinds the video and we get, it back it backed up to them in the car. So Nina freaks out and everything. And she's wondering like, where's the cop and everything. And Dorian's Dorian's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So Dorian pulls over and this, my God, this episode's amazing. Uh, so he pulls over and like, I think it's the exact same spot that they were pulled over before. And that's when Lasky returns. And a couple things about this. First of all, I love how the overhead shot of them pulling over and, and the police car pulling up, like that overhead shot mirrors the first one where, where Lasky's pulling them over in the first, uh, the scene that I just described. Um, it mirrors it. However, in this instance, the, the camera position or our perspective is from a significantly higher position in the sky than the previous scene. So it's a, it's a great way to show us both how isolated they are and how, how much like, Dorian and Nina are on their own and like there's no one around that's going to help them except for this racist cop. And it also gives us this subtle like increase in tension in in that regard because like we know that they're alone and it's like we're seeing it from an even higher level and it's just I don't know there's kind of a mental kind of thing that happens. I can't articulate it but it just made me feel like oh this is going to be even more intense. And and sure enough every interaction with Lasky is an escalation from the previous one. And it's just, it's remarkable. So speaking about the escalation of that, um, that like this scene, it's a completely different context from the original, uh, scene with, with Lasky pulling them over. And this shows like how, like the disparity 
between the racist authority figure and the African-American characters. Um, in this, it demonstrates that the racist entity, the uh, institutional racism, doesn't view them as people. Like, he sees them for their infraction on the law. Like, here... He, again, sounds like a robot also. And uh, when he pulls up, like, Dorian's like, oh, thank God, we need help. She's having, she's having, something's happening to her. We need to get her to the, to the hospital. Perfectly, like, reasonable request, clearly demonstrating that he is in a frantic situation where his mother is having uh, a potential medical emergency. But Lasky's initial, like, his first thing was that, oh, your car, like, you see the tire, it's it's on the highway. It needs to be moved. Um, because like I said, he just sees them for their infraction on the law. Um, and he sounds even more robotic. So not acknowledging, and and like he doesn't, he doesn't even acknowledge what to them is a potential medical emergency. Instead, he's immediately just exerting his power over them. And again, it's important to note here that again, I, I don't believe this episode is as clear cut as cops versus African-Americans. It is absolutely 100% a metaphor for racism in general and how racist people and racist institutions, how their only goal is to subjugate African Americans and impede them in any way possible. Like, is, it is a metaphor. And I'm, I'm afraid that people are going to see this episode and think like, oh, it's just, you know, bad mouthing cops and everything. Um, which I think is just in, a complete in uh, patently un- untrue statement and completely reductive of what this what this episode is all about. Um so Dorian is kind of has some pushback obviously because because Lasky is not acknowledging that his that they they are in the midst of a medical emergency. And so Lasky's um response is again the writing so powerful he says i will address your situation once you've compl- you've complied with my demand to move your vehicle it's just it's so aggressive and threatening in tone but it sounds so much like what you would hear in any of the video, any of the black lives lives matters videos that you would, that you can see on youtube like it's so oh it's it's powerful so this whole sequence culminates with Lasky pulling out his taser. Uh, Nina reacts in absolute terror, almost as much as if he were to draw his gun, his actual like revolver on, on Dorian. And so she presses rewind and changes the route in the hopes that, or I think, I think at this point she got like, it, she rewinds all the way back to the diner. So they get up, leave and Nina changes their route in the hopes that they'll, avoid Lasky. And here's where we get another cool Twilight Zone reference. Um, they pass by a sign when she, when she whips the car around and, and goes down a different route. Um, they pass a sign saying old Cadwallader Inn, which is a reference to escape clause from season one. Um, and it, <laughs> I like that it's for like an inn and it, like that sign has an image of a person laying in bed. And it reminds me of bedridden Walter Bedeker at the beginning of escape clause. Um, I just, I thought that was a nice touch. So, um, Nina's freaking out. She's, she's a little, she's, you know, shaken up and everything. And Dorian's asking like why they're taking this route. And she says like, it's, it's, you know, it's a different path. It's, it's not as risky and everything. It's, it's safer. And so this, at this Dorian says, uh, uh, you're right. I'm taking a risky path. I want to do something good in this world like you've done for me. I want to inspire this generation with my films. As crazy as that sounds, you always made me feel like I could do anything. 
you're the strongest person I know. Absolutely beautiful. Like that, I love that so much. And like the mother son bond between Dorian and Nina in this episode is so freaking strong. And like that scene, like the way that, uh, Damson Idris delivers that line. It's just so genuine and just so like you, you can sense the admiration that he has for her because she is, she's a person that throughout his entire life, she has, she has worked hard to provide for him and, and provide for herself and everything and, and to, um, make sure that he has this opportunity. And like, you just feel that admiration that he has for her. And I just, I love that so much. So after this, they go to the motel and they, cause she, cause Nina's like, I can't, I can't drive back tonight. I don't feel well. Um, let's just get, let's just get a motel, uh, get, go to a motel. We'll eat junk food. We'll watch trashy TV. And you know, it's our last night together before you go to college. Let's, let's just have, let's just have a nice, a nice night where we just, you know, goof off. Um, and so they're in the motel room and the lottery scene again, like the writing, it's just, it's, I love this. Um, the lottery scene is really sweet in that it showcases Nina's complete devotion to her son. Like she's about to send her son off to college. She's about to be on her own for the first time in 18 years. And she has this power to re- rewind time, but at no point in this entire episode does she use that power for personal gain? Um, and this is such a beautiful example, having a scene where she is literally watching the lottery be drawn. Um, but she doesn't use that, use that power to gain, like get money. She doesn't, she doesn't rewind it to go get a lottery ticket and, and win the lottery. Instead, she uses that that to share a moment with her son. It's just so incredibly sweet. Like she, um, she records it and she rewinds it. And then she says, Hey, if I can guess what the numbers are, you have to promise me that you'll come visit your mom anytime you're, you're able to. Um, it's just, it's such a sweet idea because Dorian's at that age where he's becoming more and more of a man. And by doing that, he will need his mother less and less. And I feel like there's an underlying like fear that she has that, like on the on the more overt level like she has this intense fear of losing her son to you know be, like being killed and everything um but the lottery like um i i, I don't know like i just i feel like that was really sweet um and the lottery drawing is a fun way for nina to still surprise him like he and like he's just so he's so gobsmacked by it, but I'll get to that in a second. But anyway, the lottery numbers, six, eight, 20 and 16. I feel like that is a reference to a specific date. Don't know the significance of it. Couldn't find anything. I looked up June 8th, 2016. I uh, looked up June 8th, 2016 black lives matter. If it was had a, had a, a tie to that, to, to the movement, I couldn't find anything. I even, I even thought for a second, like, well, maybe it's, maybe it's not June 8th, maybe it's August 6th, like, you know, the rest of the world sees dates. Um, but I couldn't find anything there either. So I don't know if, if you know what the six, eight, 20 and 16 is a reference to, if anything, please let me know. Cause that, that was something I was completely in the dark about. So, uh, before she actually going back before she rewinds, Dorian is talking about how, um, the big bang happened and how everything is just particles floating to wherever they're destined to be and that things happen and they happen the way that they should. Um, 
first of all, I think I think that kind of speaks to the arrogance of youth uh, that Dorian says these philosophical musings in such a just nonchalant tone. Um, I just I like that, but uh, it's worth mentioning at this point in the episode, I was. I thought that that was signaling to us that this episode was going to take on a universe, destiny, fate storyline. And I thought that it was going to be about Nina preventing Dorian's death and realizing that it has to happen. Like there's no way to, uh, to prevent it. Um, I'm so glad that the episode, that the episode didn't take that route. Cause, because as much as I, I like that as a concept or I like that idea as a concept, like the whole fate versus free will and how we're kind of bound by what, what we are experiencing and there's no way to change that. Like that's something, cause I love time travel in general. That's something like I'm just very curious about in film and, and television. Um, but I'm so glad that they didn't go there because I've seen that before. And this, what they do in this episode is a much more original and more personal take. Um, yeah, so she rewinds the video. This is, uh, this is the only time she uses the camera for personal use and it's, to just have a fun, uh, to kind of pull one over on her son. Um, and just, I love the chemistry here again. I love it. Cause like Dorian is like blown away by, it. he's like, how did you do that? Like what, like how'd you do Like he's so impressed and everything. And he's like, it's, it's a fun moment. Um, it's, it's great. I love it. But, uh, he goes to get snacks and everything. And then, um, Lasky shows up at the door. Um, so that raised a little bit of a question for me and, and I'm curious if anyone took that a certain way. Um, it made me wonder, does using the camcorder summon Lasky? Um, it doesn't feel like that kind of episode. And it doesn't feel like, like, I think that that might be the only case where that, where he comes up out of nowhere. I'm glad that there's not like an overt like reference to like, okay, this is like her use of the camcorder is summoning this, this entity that's chasing her. Um, I'm glad it didn't go that route because in, it would have been fitting with the twilight zone to have this, like this thing, like in another vert help in uh, a most unusual camera. Um, their, their use of it is their downfall because they're using it for personal gain. She doesn't use the camcorder for personal gain or anything like that. She's using it to protect her and her son. Um, and I feel like that's, that's kind of the underlying message of the, of the plot device of the camcorder. But anyway, it, so to sum up that really, uh, 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 crazy point that I tried to, uh, struggle through. Um, I don't think the, the camcorder summons Lasky, but it does seem to lock Nina and Lasky in this twilight zone struggle. Like they're, they're at odds, um, in kind of a mystical fashion. So anyway, uh, at, th- at this scene, Dorian goes off screen and he, uh, to get snacks, but he says off screen that someone's out here. And I want to signal out Sana Lathan's performance here. She takes a beat. She breathes deep, deeply a couple times and prepares herself because she knows it's him. And anyone like in this scenario, you think like, there's no, like there's no reason for the police officer to be there. Um, and again, he is a stand in for, uh, for the, racial uh, racist institutions of our society um so just the fact that someone is out outside of their motel room signals to her like this is racism coming after her and her son um he's the 
like Lasky is the embodiment. He's the personification of the fear, danger and oppression that she has felt her entire life as a black woman. And she doesn't need to see that Lasky is there because her life has been her trying to escape what Lasky represents. And I feel like that's just a, an incredibly powerful moment in the episode. And she feels she'll never be free of it and fears Dorian won't as well. And that's kind of her character summed up entirely. And it's summed up beautifully in just this close shot of her on the bed, like hearing this and processing it in, in like a three or four second moment. It's just, it's very powerful filmmaking. I loved it. Um, and what makes this whole thing so heart-wrenching, this entire episode so maddening also, because that we should, it's 2019, we should live in a place where, you know, this kind of thing isn't happening. But it is, and it's just, it's heart-wrenching. But what's so heart-wrenching about this particular situation in, in particular is that she does everything right, um in italics. Um, the majority of the episode, she is the embodiment of what people who naively deny the black lives matter movement say, like, like there's this whole idea within, you know, certain circles, people that support law enforcement. I come from a law enforcement family, so I've heard this kind of thing over and over again, like people naively thinking like, okay, well, uh, don't act suspicious, don't antagonize the police officer, and you won't have anything to worry about. Same thing with, like, when, you know, the Patriot Act was going on, like, under uh, under Bush. Like, like, oh, well, if you don't have anything to hide, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be worried about it. It's like, that's not the point. It's like, I don't know. Anyway, um, all that's just, it's, it's bullshit. But she is doing what society tells her, like, tells her she should be doing. And it still goes, it still continues the escalation of, of their encounters with Lasky. And this time it becomes more violent with unholstering his taser again and actually physically smashing Dorian against the framed picture. Um, but anyway, the way that he, uh, that he addresses them in the hallway um, and the way that he completely like dresses down Nina when she says that Dorian is her son, um, like it's... Oh my God, the writing. Um, so he says, like, like he asked for their names and she says, I'm Nina Harrison. And Dorian says, I'm Dorian Harrison. And, uh, he asks what his relation is to Nina. And Nina says, he's my son. And his response is, ma'am, I asked this boy. And the use of the word boy just makes my skin crawl. Um, and that's intentional. Like that's, it's supposed to in this episode. So at this point, Nina is kind of all too ready to comply with Lasky. He, uh, he asks for their identification and she is like, she tells him like it's in his back pocket. Um, Dorian's is Dorian's, um, identification is in his wallet in his back pocket. And that's, you know, saying that it's telling him where it is so that when Dorian reaches for it, he doesn't think he's pulling a weapon. Um, and I, I like that inclusion there. Um, but uh when she is kind of going for her purse uh or for her identification dorian fights back because he's 100% right there's no grounds for them to turn over their idea uh, their ids there's no reason for him to be there like he says that they got a complaint about noise or whatever from the motel room and 
I don't know. It's just, it's clearly harassment and Dorian calls him out for that. And what the episode demonstrates so well is how much of a, of a gulf there is between their rights and his authority. And I, I love that. Um, or I love the way that like the message that it's conveying in this episode. Um, it's thought provoking. So Lasky freaks out at the camcorder again, smashes Dorian against a picture. Nina rewinds. This time they're back at the diner and Nina actually approaches Lasky in the diner and tries to talk to him. And she's polite in trying to get on his good side. And this is one of the most important scenes in the entire episode. It's Nina's attempt to humanize Lasky and her attempt to bridge the gap that is so ingrained in him. However, it's all for naught because Lasky's racist. He's the embodiment of racist institutions that are in our society today. He won't change and you can't win people over with a piece of pie. Um, and that's the shameful truth of what this episode is saying. Racism, discrimination, profiling, they're all so ingrained in our society. They have, and they've been ingrained in our society over decades and decades that it's hard to change that and to attempt to change one person at a time is kind of a fool's errand as sad as that is. And just his racist behavior is so subtle in the way it's depicted. He doesn't, he doesn't shake her hand because he has a holstered weapon, which on one hand, I don't buy that at all. Um, I think it was just an excuse not to touch her. And on the other hand, it may have been born from him not trusting her and thinking she would reach for his weapon. Either thought is ridiculous, preposterous. And completely inherently racist um, in the casual way that he throws around his racism saying, I know everyone like you. Uh, Glenn Fleshler does such a great job in this episode. He's like 99% of Lasky's dialogue is in a generic cop voice. And I mean that as such a compliment to the writing into the performance of Glenn Fleshler, because it reinforces that he is a stand in for racism in general in our society and everything. He is he is this robotic entity, and it's just, it's something that is pervasive throughout all of uh, our culture. And so they, they share this moment, like the, the one, the one moment where she almost reaches him is when he implies that his wife is dead. Um, and she shows compassion. And in that moment, it's like he's trying to read her, like he, like his mind is trying to figure out what she means because she might as well be like an alien to him. Um, because she is a different, uh, race. Um, so they, they have that moment. He thanks her for the pie. It's just still, it's still fraught with tension, but Nina walks away thinking that she has reached him and that, that everything's going to be fine. Then the other shoe drops and he, he asks her about the car. And I love the way that that scene is shot. It's kind of a, I referenced earlier when he is sitting at the counter and she's filming Dorian and they have like this thing where in the background they're in fo they're in focus in the booth and he's out of focus in the forefront. It's a mirror like it's a similar shot in this scene because he is in the background out of focus and she's in the foreground completely in focus. And in that moment he is the embodiment again of every racist white person she has encountered in her life who thinks that her race should dictate the type of life she has. And this this really racist idea that, that, oh, because you're a black woman, you shouldn't have a nice car. You shouldn't have it made. You should be oppressed. And she, at this point, she's biting back at that, at him and that implication, saying that she worked hard to get where she is and to get, to get her son to college. 
and like she she has this outburst and then she tries to reel it back by saying we all want that for our kids don't we and it's still this kind of biting thing but it's just it's it's just a really incredible read of the of the line by her that it's just it's just it's really it's really powerful um so we get outside the diner. Lasky's license plate reads 01015, which is a reference to Flight 1015 from Nightmare, uh, which I, I'm curious if that's going to be kind of a running thing throughout uh, the episodes, but I, I don't know. Uh, so Lasky confronts her in the parking lot, and he is demanding her identification, her, uh, her driver's license, proof of insurance, and proof of ownership, and she fights back at him. Like, this is the point where, where her... Her reaction to Lasky, her and Dorian's rea- reaction to Lasky are swapped. She fights back. She gets angry. And Dorian is taking on her, her attitude where it's like, okay, well, I have, like, I can, I, I can prove it, like, prove it here. Like, it's fine. Um, let's just do what he says. But she's angry. Like, she says, like, who carries their pink slip with them? Like, who carries their, like, who has that? Um, and he's saying, like, well, you better have it because you're not leaving this parking lot without, without proving to me that you own this vehicle. And it's just, it's, it's so, uh, aggravating. So Dorian says, it's fine. I I have a picture of the pink slip on my phone, which real quickly, if I'm allowed one nitpick in this episode, it would be that Dorian saying that he has a picture of the pink slip on his phone feels just a little bit contrived. Um, it just seems kind of weird. Like, okay, they need the pink slip. He suddenly has it on his phone. It's, it's weird. Um, uh, but it doesn't detract from the episode. It's, it's fine. So he gets into the car to grab his phone. And, uh, when he comes out, he shows the phone and Lasky pulls out his gun, shoots him in the chest. Um, now I, I come from a police family. I, my family is police. Like my brothers, they're, police officers. I have friends that are police officers. My dad was a police officer. My mom works for the police department as a civilian. But previous to that, in like the seventies and eighties, she worked as a dispatcher. Um, like I come from a police family and I think that this scenario, the situation like in general terms is a hard one to dissect in real life because there are a lot of variables and, and whatnot. Like it's, it's, it's something, it's a tricky, it's a tricky subject matter to, to handle, um, honestly. Um, but here it's done well. Like it's just, it's, it's a well done situ, like a well done depiction of that abhorrent and terrifying situation. Um, so Dorian shot and then we get, um, an act break and we come back and there's this, um, there's this scene where uh, we get this kind of heightened reality dream sequence that's showing Nina, Dorian, and Dorian's daughter, and maybe his son too, I think, playing in this field with bubbles um, before flashing to Nina crying outside the morgue before she's about to identify Dorian. Uh, Visually, it's beautiful and heartbreaking, and like I was a little confused, not confused, but I wondered if it really fit within the episode because it's the only scene like that. Um but I like the way it was done. Like it fits, it fits well enough. Like I like how the focus shifts throughout the, throughout the sequence. Um, and it gives like that kind of effect gives it this dreamlike quality. That's, uh, kind of hammers on the, the pain that she feels. So she rewinds when she gets into the, into the morgue and she rewinds the camcorder. Um, and she's not sure that it'll work in that moment, which, um, I think it's fine. It's a, maybe not shaky because she did drop the camcorder. 
but she has like this silent like moment where she's like, please take me back. Please, please take me back. Um, and she reminds him when she sees, uh, when she sees Dorian at the booth, when she comes back, she's so happy and everything. And then they need to get out of there. Uh, they see Lasky at the door. Uh, well, first, first, let me say that when they're leaving the diner, I love the imagery of the two of them walking through that narrow hallway of the diner and toward the, toward the door. And on the left hand side, they're passing the American flag on the left on the, on the wall. And Dorian looks back over his shoulder at the diner as soon as the flag is out of the frame. And I just think that's great imagery because the diner is the quintessential symbol of Americana and everything. And it's just, it, it was a nice like moment where he's looking, looking back and she's, while she's trying to, you know, escape, uh, the diner and everything. So when they're driving, Nina's crying in the car, Dorian thinking it's maybe because she's sad that he's going away to college. Um, I think that that was, um, it, it tracks well. Um, and then at that moment, Nina says that she, she's asking him for help. She's give, she's bringing him into the fold and, and asking him for help. And he says, you never ask for help. And, I don't know. I kind of think that what the episode's saying about Nina in that moment as a character is that she has been on her own ever since she left home and maybe similar to how Lasky is representative of the oppressiveness of racism. Nina is representative of the African-American community um, and her, her her arc throughout this entire episode is to realize that the way to overcome the oppression is to band together as a community. Um I could be completely off base, but that's my read on it. Um, so she comes clean to him and I really, uh, like, like, like they pull over and she comes clean to him. And I just want to say, I, again, I really love the locations in this episode. Like it's very desolate, um, kind of just open country and everything. So, uh, they're talking and then, uh, they're trying to figure it out. And Dorian says, there's nothing magical about knowing the only way we, haven't taken can get us to school. Um, and he's saying that basically the only route that they haven't taken in this whole experience is the route that goes through uncle Neil's house, um, because it's the only way that they haven't gone. And here's where the episode reaches kind of a completely different level. Like it, it brings us into the third act and it's, it's on a, it gets into a whole other level. Um, but first, uh, (laughs) they pass by the sign, uh, on the way to, to Neil's. And first of all, the, university he's going to is called Tennyson University and apparently it's a reference to the main character in the original Twilight Zone episode The Silence which I haven't seen yet but I'm going to be covering it in about a month or so if I keep up my uh, output um, and also I want to point out that when they pass that sign that says Tennyson University I think it also says Earlyville Earliesville or whatever which I don't know what that reference is again um, but when they pass the sign on the way to Neil's there's also a small sign that says Corrigan Men's Club and I kind of feel like that may be a reference to Pete Corrigan, the character from back there, um, which is also a time travel episode. Um, so Neil lives in this quiet neighborhood and Nina reveals to Dorian while they're outside the, outside the house that it's where her older brothers lost their lives. And she references that one of them was shot right over there. And she tells him that like, like Dorian says, like, and you haven't been back. And she says to me, there was only two ways out walking out, and never looking back or dying. And when Neil comes out, he references kind of the gentrification of the neighborhood that they just built a stadium nearby and they've been pushing everyone out any way that they can. And at this point we get our second Black Panther reference, which I, I love. He mentions the, he mentions the Dorian that he has a, uh, first issue 
uh, Black Panther comic in mint condition and go, don't mess it up. Um, so he has a scene, Neil has a scene with, with Nina where he references that she didn't come, even come back for their father's funeral. And at this point, I kind of wish that there was more explored about her history. Um, this is a 45 minute episode. I think for most, for the most part, it's a pretty well, um, well paced episode, but I kind of wish that there was a little bit more to her backstory and her history with, uh, with her family. But, it, we get we get plenty, so it's it's pretty fine. Um, so at this point, there's a reference where uh, actually I think it comes a little bit later where he mentions um, the remembrance project that he's doing. It's uh, kind of feels like an allegory for slavery and, and displacement of of, of African Americans. Like he's documenting the the black people who have lived in that neighborhood who are being moved out because of the gentrification. Um, and that takes us into a whole other scenario of the, of the episode. This allegory for slavery and displacement includes like a visual kind of reference to the Underground Railroad. And I think that's an incredible place to take the episode. Um, but I'll get to that in a second. So, uh, there's a sign in his, or like there's a bunch of stuff on, on his walls. Like we get the Black Lives Matter, um, writing on it and, he mentions that he's been documenting everyone that lives in the neighborhood, their stories and everything. So anyway, so Nina tells him about the camcorder and he stops her and says that he believes her. And there's this kind of family connection that they have that I really appreciated in the episode. And so they're kind of formulating their plan. Um, and he says, they always come question is what are we going to do? And that's when he references the remembrance project. And he has a map that shows like how they're going going to go under the radar to escape this, this cop. Um, and it took me a second to really understand what was going on. Um, I wasn't sure about this whole secret trip to take Dorian to school until it just clicked for me. Like this is the underground railroad. This is them escaping slavery and bondage and everything. Like this is them escaping that. So it's really brief. I kind of feel like, well, no, it's, it's done. It's done enough. It gets the point across. Um, and it doesn't feel disjointed to me or anything, but they arrive at college at the college and I love the music when they come out of the, out of the like storm door thing. Um, it's just upbeat and, and hopeful. Like this is the end of their, uh, their journey. Um, when they walk up toward the gate, um, I do want to point out there was a, there was a white man in a black suit with his back to the camera that he's holding a cigarette in his hand. Uh, I felt like that was a nice nod to Serling. Um, and also I'm glad that that hasn't been in every episode. Like, I hope that this is the only time we see that. Like, I could see them thinking like, oh, that'd be cool to have that in every episode of, of the show going forward. But I'm glad that it's not the case. So... They walk up to the gate and that's when they get the final confrontation between Nina and Lasky. Um, so Lasky pulls up and says, Hey, you three stop there. Uh, Neil goes up to him, uh, and stands like right in front of the gun and says, uh, says no, like just no officer. You're not, you're not going to stop us. And Lasky says, I'm, uh, since you, uh, I can't remember exactly what he says at first, but he says, I'm going to explain to you how this is supposed to go. Because again, he's the embodiment of every racist institu institution in our society. And this is the status quo of, of how it's supposed to be from decades of ingrained racism and, in, and in within our society. Um, so then we get the final confrontation between Nina and Lasky. She chooses not to rewind it. Um, 
and instead records the records the police officer and who is now accompanied by a squad of of cops that show up um and in here again it it makes me nervous and again i'm kind of speaking into the vacuum because i haven't seen the response that this episode's gotten but it makes me nervous that people will view this episode in a literal sense like thinking that oh this is about cops versus african americans but it's not he's again it's it's bigger than that it's more metaphorical than that. It's a, it's more of a metaphor than that. Um, so Nina films the cops and the people at the college start to film. And just the imagery of that is powerful. It brings home the arc of her being just a, uh, a, lone, a lone person in this world and reaching out to the community and how it's telling the, telling the story that like the way to overcome this, these racist institutions is to band together and become a community yourself and, and affect change through through uh, showing that there needs to be accountability for, for the racists of the world and the racism in the world. Um, so she says, she tells him that uh, we're all witnesses here and you can't like do this. So he says, you think you can, and Lasky says, you think you can intimidate me with a camcorder. Have you watched the news or do you watch the news or whatever he said? And she says, you've crossed the line, harassing us, abusing authority, profiling us, following us, shooting us, killing us. Now we cross the line. My son will cross that gate. My son will go to college. So back the fuck up. And he, at this point, okay. I don't have kids. <laughs> uh, like I don't have kids. I never watched the twilight zone growing up as the, as the whole point of this podcast. Um, so having like putting that framing it, framing what I'm about to say that way, the foul language in these episodes hasn't bothered me. Like there's been kind of a, um, not outcry, but there's been disappointment within people who've watched the twilight zone, who are fans of the original, that there is foul language in these episodes. Um, and up until this point, it hasn't bothered me at all, but it also hasn't added anything to the show. So I totally understand where people are coming from saying like, okay, well, I can't watch the show with my kids the way that my parents watched it with me when I was a kid because it has like all of these, all of these, all this vulgarity that's just thrown out there. Like the way that, uh, in the comedian, like Dee Dee says to suck on her vagina, like that's just too coarse and too foul for what the show should be. So up until this point, I, the language hasn't bothered me because I'm watching it as a, as an adult who hasn't, who doesn't have kids and probably won't have kids. Um, but when Nina says back the fuck up, there is so much power behind that F bomb that it makes me glad that they're doing that. Like I can respect people not liking, not liking the use of vulgar language and everything, but here it fits so well because it packs that power. Um, and I'm someone who, like, I don't care. Like, I, I curse and everything, but it's not, like, on my podcast, I try not to because I feel like that's, I kind of feel like it lessens the power of it. Um, <laughs> it's actually a great Parks and Rec joke where Leslie's talking to the camera and says, I don't like to use, use the word butthead. Um, because I think if you call everyone a butthead, it loses its power. Um, but Tom is acting like a real dick. Um, I just, I love that. I've watched that episode today, but that kind of, kind of embodies my position on, on like cursing on podcasts. Like, you know, fine. If that's how you talk, that's fine. But I personally don't, I try not to, cause I want more power behind it. So that when I say it, it's like, okay, well, I'm not just saying, oh, fuck this. I'm saying like, no, fuck this, because this is a, something that I 
don't like. Anyway, uh, that kind of got away from me. So, um, when Nina and Lasky are talking, um, there are a couple of shots, like there's one shot with, um, Neil and Lasky and then another shot with Nina and Lasky when Nina comes up to confront him. That is, it cuts to like a crane shot where it's from, it's like obviously in the sky and it's from outside of the gate or inside of the gate, I should say, of the school. And one of the, one of the like circles in the gate is, positioned in a way that like the characters are inside the circle. Um, and I tweeted this with, with screenshots and everything. So check it out on OV anthology pod on Twitter. But I think that like, that's a very cool call potential callback to Nick of time. Um, because when the couple walk into the diner in that original episode, the camera is positioned um, inside the diner and and zoomed in on the door. And as they walk in, it zooms out and it shows that like it's actually the cameras behind this kind of wooden divider that's like crossed. So they're actually inside this like inside the divider. And as it zooms out, you see like oh, there's a divider between the camera and the characters as they're walking in. And it's just like that's it's a great like visual metaphor for like them being kind of like they're going to be trapped, um, potentially trapped in the episode. And, um, I love the way that that's, you know, referenced in here again, I, maybe I'm reaching cause it is kind of a different situation. Um, and maybe it's just a coincidence, but if it's an homage, I, I really appreciated it. Um, because I, I just think I love that visual, uh, technique. So Anyway, so the the cops back down, they leave, Dorian goes to college and uh <laughs> uh Neil says like damn sis and then like that's the end of that. So we flash forward to 10 years later. Nina, Dorian and Dorian's daughter Trinity um are in in the house and um so this ending it's both heartbreaking and hopeful and powerful. Um, we see Nina still has the camcorder and she's recording every day and she's doing that in fear that those in authority will take everything she has away from her. Like, even though she stood up to Lasky and she, she made her stand and she, she like the, uh, she had that community behind her and everything. She still lives in fear that everything's going to be taken away from her. And that's, that's heartbreaking in, in and of itself. Um, and Dorian is trying to convince her, like, it's not needed. It's fine. Like why you're, you're recording every day. And she's like, you know why? Um, but fine. Like, I love this ending so much because it's Trinity who grabs the camcorder and she's playing with it. And then she, she drops it and it shatters. And like, I feel like that's just a really powerful statement. Like I, I mentioned earlier that the kind of generational differences between how these characters interact with the conventions of racism and the institutionalized racism in our society. Um, there's a difference between how each of these characters do it because there's a generational divide, but it takes so like the, the implication is that it takes generations to invoke change and to break through this oppression. Um, Nina's one generation. She's fearful. She's supplicant to the wills of those in authority because she fears that she's, that she and everyone she loves is going to be killed and, and going to be destroyed by it. Dorian is idealistic. He came of age in a time where it's encouraged to question authority and it's, it's the start of this whole revolution. So he bites back. She, or he fights back and he questions like what the logic is behind it because he knows that 
racism is bad. He hasn't like like racism isn't doesn't have the controlling hold that it does. But it's Trinity Trinity's generation that may still truly break through and live in a better and safer world than her father and grandmother. And that's embodied by the fact that she drops the camcorder, shatters it, so they don't have that that crutch or they don't have that they don't need that power anymore. And it's just it's a beautifully done thing it's incredibly moving very profound very powerful and i love the episode for that um and so the episode kind of closes with dorian leaving to go get ice cream and when he goes to the door and he leaves i was so like in my head i was begging the show not to let anything happen to him like and i'm really glad that it didn't end in some devastation or anything like this is a this is uh as as heavy and intense as the subject matter is it's it's a uh it's a somewhat hopeful ending. Um, but then Peel's closing narration is profound in and of itself. It's amazing. Um, it shows that Nina will never truly be free of the fear that she feel, feels. And I love the way that as he's talking, as Neil, as Peel is narrating, uh, the police lights are kind of flashing on just half of her face. And then right at the end, like we get a brief siren sound after the narration. I thought that was a wonderful touch to end the end, the episode on kind of closing the book on, on this episode, but leaving it open to be a thought, thought provoking and profound statement on our society and, and on, uh, the culture we live in. Um, that does it for the episode. I ran really long. Holy crap. um, so oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> that reminded me. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, it's one forty-one p.m. and I've like in the recording, it's one hour and forty-one minutes. Uh, that just reminded me of Justin in Nightmare at Thirty Thousand Feet. So anyway, um, that's my review of Replay. It's an incredible episode. And by the way, the closing credits of the episodes—I failed to mention the first two, but I want to highlight them here. The closing credits, uh, I haven't been watching them because I don't watch the teasers and everything, but I did watch uh, the previous ones. I love that the closing credits of the episodes are straight out of the original series, down to the music. It shows a shows uh, just a, a, a frame of the episode and then uh, plays the music as the credits roll. It's, it's exactly like the original series. I, I love this reboot for that. Um yeah, so that's my review of Replay. Let me know what you thought. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I, <laughs> that'll do it for this episode. Next time on the podcast, uh, on the main feed, I'm going to be reviewing, uh, Mr. Dingle the Strong, uh, Burgess Meredith's, uh, return to the Twilight Zone. And then, uh, I will also be reviewing A Traveler, which is episode four of the Twilight Zone 2019. Um, let me know what you thought of this episode, what you thought of replay, what you think about the Twilight Zone reboot and everything. And, uh, yeah, I, that'll do it for this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening and see you next time. Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to anthologypod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. 
If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official Anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more can be found in the Obsessive Viewer's Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at teepublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewer's annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.